Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Second Nephi chapter 4. This chapter brings us to the end of Lehi's great benedictory address and his patriarchal blessing to his family. After Nephi offers his own comments on the writings and prophecies of Joseph of Egypt in the first two verses of this chapter, Lehi's blessing to specific family members continues. We then learn of Lehi's death in verse 12. Nephi will then offer some additional storytelling narrative in verses 13 through 14, as well as a reminder of the contents of his large and small plates. What follows then in the remainder of the chapter in verses 16 through 35 is a passage that is unique in form and content really to the entire Book of Mormon. And this is a passage that gives us a glimpse into Nephi's great soul. It recounts many of Nephi's earlier experiences and provides a model for us, I think, of spiritual resilience. It can most appropriately be called the Psalm of Nephi. Let's begin in verse 1, where again we find Nephi assessing Joseph's writings. And now I, Nephi, speak concerning the prophecies of which my father hath spoken, concerning Joseph who was carried into Egypt. So Nephi is bringing this topic from the previous chapter to an end, almost making us wonder why these first two verses aren't placed at the end of the previous chapter. Then verse 2, For behold, he truly prophesied concerning all his seed. And the prophecies which he wrote, there are not many greater. And he prophesied concerning us and our future generations, and they are written upon the plates of brass. This gives us an opportunity then, before we move into Lehi's blessing to his family, to dig even deeper into Joseph and his prophecies and who this man was, and to consider his writings that we don't really have access to today outside of 2 Nephi chapter 3 and the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 50. McConkie and Millet say this, The stature of Joseph of Egypt as a prophet, remains little known even to the Latter-day Saints. From the text restored by Joseph Smith to the book of Genesis, we learn that Joseph enjoyed the personal presence of the Lord Jehovah. We learn that he knew of the destiny of Lehi and his family and of the destiny of Joseph Smith. The detail of the knowledge had by the ancient Joseph is remarkable. We can imagine Nephi being at a point of, maybe we could call it prophetic maturity by the time that he's writing his own record and saying this about Joseph's prophets. And again, his comment is that the prophecies which Joseph wrote, there are not many greater. So this is coming from Nephi, who himself has prophesied and has visited the visionary realm and has an exhaustive understanding of the writings of Isaiah and of others. And so this is his assessment of Joseph's writings. It's very intriguing to us, and of course makes us wish that we had access to more of Joseph's writings. Daniel Ludlow, in his companion to your study of the Book of Mormon, gives us additional opportunity to consider Joseph's writings. He says, Nephi mentions the prophecies of Joseph that were written on the brass plates of Laban, and he concludes, there are not many greater. But where are these great prophecies of Joseph? Why do they not appear in the Old Testament? We do not know the answers to these questions, but the following observations might give some clues as to possible answers. In the first place, Joseph's prophecies would logically be written most completely on the stick 
or record of Joseph. Thus, they were probably included in detail on the brass plates of Laban. However, Joseph's prophecies are not found presently in the stick or record of Judah, the Bible. Again, this would indicate that the records on the brass plates of Laban were more comprehensive and complete than the records from which we get our Old Testament. In the second place, evidently some of the writings of Joseph are still in existence but have not been published to the world. Joseph Smith said that he received some papyri scrolls that contained the record of Abraham and Joseph at the same time he obtained the Egyptian mummies from Michael Chandler. Concerning this record, Joseph Smith has written, The record of Abraham and Joseph, found with the mummies, is beautifully written on papyrus, with black and small part red ink or paint, in perfect preservation. That's out of History of the Church. The prophet next describes how the mummies and the record came into his possession, and then concludes, Thus I have given a brief history of the manner in which the writings of the fathers, Abraham and Joseph, have been preserved, and how I came in possession of the same, a correct translation of which I shall give in its proper place. That too is from History of the Church. The record of Abraham, translated by the prophet, was subsequently printed, says Brother Ludlow, and is now known as the Book of Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price. However, the translation of the Book of Joseph has not yet been published. Evidently, the record of Joseph was translated by the prophet, but perhaps the reason it was not published was because the great prophecies therein were too great for the people of this day. This glimpse into the prophecies and the writings then of Joseph of Egypt comes to an end here at the end of verse 2. And now we return to Lehi's blessing towards his children. He specifically gathers the posterity of Laman and addresses them in verses 3 through 7 and then uh, does the same to Lemuel, uh, but more specifically to Lemuel's posterity, almost giving you the impression that Laman and Lemuel were not specifically addressed, perhaps out of unwillingness. Hard to tell for sure, but it's curious. In verse 10, Lehi addresses the sons of Ishmael. And then in verse 11, he speaks to Sam. That brings us to the end of his words and a recording of Lehi's death, which we'll look at in more detail. And then we move into Nephi's psalm to end this chapter. So coming back to verse 3, Wherefore, after my father had made an end of speaking concerning the prophecies of Joseph, he called the children of Laman, his sons, and his daughters, and said unto them, Behold my sons and my daughters, who are the sons and the daughters of my firstborn. I would that ye should give ear to my words. The word firstborn here is loaded with meaning. Lehi and his posterity are a people who, of course, are steeped in Hebrew culture. There would have been a sense of entitlement, most likely, on Laman's part and the part of his posterity, that they would receive Lehi's blessing and all of the temporal aspects of that blessing that do come to the firstborn. Verse 4, For the Lord God hath said, that inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land, and inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from my presence. But behold, my sons and my daughters, I cannot go down to my grave, save I should leave a blessing upon you. For behold, I know that if you are brought up in the way you should go, you will not depart from it. In verse 5, you can almost sense, and then maybe I'm laying my own bias on top of this, but sense the tension between Lehi and his eldest son and their posterity saying that he wouldn't go down to his grave in peace if he hadn't also addressed Laman and his family, even though they stand at odds to him. Then he tells them something very interesting in verse 6, which is especially interesting to us after we can see that he has talked to Jacob and all others who were assembled about agency and freedom of choice. Wherefore, if ye are cursed... Behold, I leave my blessing upon you that the cursing may be taken from you and answered upon the heads of your parents. Lehi here, of course, is implying that the parents 
In other words, Laman and Lemuel and their wives have not trained up their children in the way they should go. And because of the path that that will set their posterity on, their posterity's sin will actually be on the heads of their parents. This doctrine is reflected in uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 68, for example, in verse 25. And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion, or in any of her stakes which are organized, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and baptism in the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. I think with that verse, sometimes the uh, phrase when eight years old is interpreted as a deadline (laughs) for the time at which parents can uh, uh, no longer be responsible for teaching their children. I think in a sense it could be true uh, because that is an age of accountability, but I I think when eight years old is simply part of the descriptive language uh, describing the ordinance of baptism. But the real message of this verse, of course, is that the sin be on the heads of the parents if they don't train their children in the way that they should go. Then Lehi projects far into the future as he addresses Laman's posterity and says, Wherefore, because of my blessing, the Lord God will not suffer that ye shall perish, Wherefore, he will be merciful unto you and unto your seed forever. Lehi is suggesting here that he's playing the role of an advocate in a way between God and his future posterity. Now, verse 8, Lehi turns to Lemuel's family. And it came to pass that after my father had made an end of speaking to the sons and daughters of Laman, he caused the sons and daughters of Lemuel to be brought before him. And he spake unto them, saying, Behold, my sons and my daughters, who are the sons and the daughters of my second son. Behold, I leave unto you the same blessing which I left unto the sons and daughters of Laman, wherefore thou shalt not utterly be destroyed, but in the end thy seed shall be blessed. So while the message is exactly the same to Lemuel's family, Lehi and the text are still careful to show that he addressed each of these groups separately. We'll talk more about that in a moment. First, here is some commentary by Monty S. Nyman. Lehi blessed the posterity of both Laman and Lemuel, that if they came to be cursed in the future because they followed the teachings of their parents, the curse would be taken from them and answered upon the heads of their parents. Lehi based this blessing on the doctrine that children who are brought up in the way they should go would not depart from it. But because Laman and Lemuel had not taught their children correctly, their sins will be upon their heads. Lehi calls all the children of his people and pronounces a final blessing upon their heads collectively before his death. These blessings are self-explanatory and somewhat repetitive, but a few observations should be made. The great concern for his wayward sons and their posterity is again evident. Lehi tells Laman's children that the Lord will not hold the children accountable for their parents' sins. Lehi is probably paraphrasing from the plates of brass Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it, which comes from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. When he speaks to his older son's children, Solomon, who spake 3,000 Proverbs, says in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, is dated about 1,000 B.C. and could easily have been included on the brass plates. A final observation, the Book of Mormon was to bring a knowledge of the Savior unto the Lamanites and the Lemuelites and the Ishmaelites as it says in Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 3. This showed that Lehi's blessing, that their seed would never perish, was fulfilled. I think we can see in verse 6 that when Lehi says, I leave my blessing upon you, addressing again the posterity of Laman, that this is an exercise and an expression of priesthood power. Here's something from the Book of Mormon Institute manual that expands on that idea. God has fulfilled and continues to fulfill Lehi's promise of mercy to Laman's and Lemuel's children. There are several cases in the Book of Mormon where Lehi's promise to the children of Laman and Lemuel were fulfilled. And then references here are Alma 17 through 26, which of course is when Ammon and the sons of Mosiah uh, found uh, those Lamanites, such as Lamoni and his father in the land of Nephi, who were elect and hardened not their hearts. 
and then Helaman, uh, chapters 5 through 6, and verses, or excuse me, chapters 13 through 15. Then the Institute Manual continues. In the latter days, God has continued to fulfill Lehi's promise of mercy to Laman and Lemuel's children. President Henry B. Eyring of the First Presidency explained, quote, Our effort to offer to our family the testimony we have of the truth will be multiplied in power and extended in time. We have all seen evidence of that in families we have known. I saw it in South America as I looked into the faces of missionaries. Hundreds of them passed by me, shaking my hand and looking deeply into my eyes. I was nearly overwhelmed with the confirmation that these children of Father Lehi and of Sariah were there in the Lord's service because our Heavenly Father honors His promises to families. To nearly His last breath, Lehi taught and testified and tried to bless his children. Terrible tragedy came among his descendants when they rejected his testimony, the testimonies of other prophets and of the scriptures. But in the eyes and faces of those missionaries, I felt confirmation that God has kept his promises to reach out to Lehi's covenant children and that he will reach out to ours. Unquote. And that's from a conference report that Utter Eyring delivered in April of 1996. Now we move to verse 11 where Lehi addresses Sam. And after he had made an end of speaking unto them, he spake unto Sam, saying, Blessed art thou and thy seed, for thou shalt inherit the land like unto thy brother Nephi, and thy seed shall be numbered with his seed, and thou shalt be even like unto thy brother, and thy seed like unto his seed, and thou shalt be blessed in all thy days. We see that beatitudinal expression toward Sam, blessed art thou. He seems to deserve it, I think, to us as readers, because we know he's always been there with Nephi. That's what we can infer uh, as we read the record up to this point. And I think we also feel a sense of sympathy or empathy toward Sam because he remains largely unacknowledged throughout this record. Daniel Ludlow provides us with this insight with regard to Sam. Although Nephi's brother Sam evidently had children, there are no Samites mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Perhaps Lehi's promise to Sam that his seed would be numbered with the seed of Nephi helps to explain why the record does not refer to Samites, whereas the descendants of the other sons of Lehi are referred to as Lamanites, Lemuelites, Nephites, Jacobites, and Josephites. I want to provide some commentary here that has what maybe we could call a latter-day likening, uh, especially by Elder Ballard, uh, of this section of 2 Nephi chapter 4, and then return to something by John Welch, which gives us more understanding into why Lehi addresses the specific groups that he does during these four or three and a half chapters at the beginning of 2 Nephi. So first from the Book of Mormon Institute Manual. To the end of his life, Lehi taught his children the gospel. In our day, the Lord's servants continue to emphasize parents' responsibility to teach their children. The First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles declared, We warn that individuals who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. Like Lehi, most Latter-day Saint parents take this responsibility very seriously. Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained how our focus on the importance of families should impact our parenting. Quote, Our family-centered perspective should make Latter-day Saints strive to be the best parents in the world. It should give us enormous respect for our children, who truly are our spiritual siblings, and it should cause us to devote whatever time is necessary to strengthen our families. Indeed, nothing is more critically connected to happiness, both our own and that of our children, than how well we love and support one another within the family. That's from an October 2005 conference address by Elder Ballard. Here is what John Welch helps us see as we come to the end of this uh, section of 2 Nephi. Lehi was doing many things as he spoke officially to his posterity for the last time. One of the most enduring legacies of Lehi's last will and testament appears to be the organization of his descendants into tribes, Just as the ancient patriarch Jacob left the house of Israel with a family structure composed of twelve tribes, Lehi addressed his posterity in seven groups. 
This seems to be the precedent that established the legal order that lasted among these people for almost 1,000 years. After speaking to several of his sons collectively, Lehi spoke to first Zoram in 2 Nephi chapter 1, verses 30-32, then second to Jacob in 2 Nephi chapter 2, then third to Joseph in 2 Nephi chapter 3, fourth to the children of Laman in 2 Nephi chapter 4, verses 3-7, fifth to the children of Lemuel in 2 Nephi chapter 4 verses 8 through 9, sixth to the sons of Ishmael in 2 Nephi chapter 4 verse 10, and seven to Sam together with Nephi in 2 Nephi chapter 4 verse 11. The seven groups recognizable here are exactly the same as the seven tribes mentioned three other times in the Book of Mormon, each time in the rigid order of Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, Zoramites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites. And, and this happens in the, in the book of Jacob. It happens in uh, 4th Nephi. It happens in Mormon. And also in the Doctrine and Covenants, as Brother Welt says. Though kingships and judgeships might come and go in Nephite history, the underlying family fabric of Nephi society attributable to Lehi's testament remained permanent. Even in the final days of the Nephite demise, Mormons still saw the general population divided among this precise seven-part line. The fact that this exact organization persisted so long is evidence that Lehi's last words to his sons in this regard were taken as constitutionally definitive, just as the organization of Israel into twelve tribes in the earlier age had been essential to the political, social, religious, and legal structure there. That comes out of Welch's book, Last Will and Testament. In this reading, I, th- I think I may have skipped verse 10, where Lehi speaks to the sons of Ishmael. So I'll read that here. And it came to pass that when my father had made an end of speaking unto them, behold, he spake unto the sons of Ishmael, yea, and even all his household. Now we move to verse 12, where we come to the death of this great figure who we've come to love so much in the Book of Mormon record so far. We also find a formula, a way to address those that we love, Verse 12, And it came to pass, after my father Lehi had spoken unto all his household, according to the feelings of his heart, and the spirit of the Lord which was in him. And and there's that formula, I think. It's a two-part formula. Then it says, He waxed old, and it came to pass that he died, and was buried. Waxed old is uh, archaic language, uh, but is sensible, as Reynolds and Soljal explain. This is perfectly good English, although now archaic. It means he became exhausted or tired out. Lehi's last act in mortality was to bless his posterity. And let no one regard this as a mere formality. A father's blessing by the power of the priesthood is a draft on the unlimited resources of heaven, which our eternal father has obligated himself to honor. So now as Nephi gives us this bit of storytelling narrative in uh, moving the story forward by telling us of the death of Lehi, he gives us this in verse 13 and 14, more pieces of narrative before he moves into his psalm. And it came to pass that not many days after his death, Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael were angry with me because of the admonitions of the Lord. That, of course, would be Nephi's explanation of why these people were angry with him, that they were angry because of the admonitions of the Lord. And it's a small piece of insight for us that that is the reason that people become angry towards the servants of the Lord. But ostensibly, they're just angry towards the servants of the Lord. Then Nephi says in verse 14, For I, Nephi, was constrained to speak unto them according to his word. For I had spoken many things unto them, and also my father before his death, many of which sayings are written upon mine other plates, for a more history part are written upon mine other plates. There, there is obviously a schism that is forming between Laman and Lemuel and their posterity and Nephi and his. And this will culminate in their physical separation in the next chapter. Uh, for now, we're going to move into this short section that sounds somewhat like First uh, Nephi chapter 9 or First Nephi chapter 19, where Nephi once again uses the phrase other plates, differentiating between these plates, which are the small plates, and the other plates, which are the large plates.
Sidney B. Sperry has written that Lehi had scarcely been laid away when Nephi was again the object of the wrath of his elder brothers and the sons of Ishmael. This was because of the admonitions of the Lord which he had cited to them. Many of his sayings to them, as well as those of his father, were written upon the large plates. Nephi says that he wrote the things of his soul upon these, meaning the small plates of Nephi. And that is the phrase that Nephi uses here in verse 15, when Nephi says, And upon these I write the things of my soul. That provides a segue of sorts for us as we move into this final passage, uh, this incredible psalm by Nephi. So to continue with verse 15, And upon these I write the things of my soul, and many of the scriptures which are engraven upon the plates of brass. For my soul delighteth in the scriptures, and my heart pondereth them, and writeth them for the learning and the profit of my children. There's lots to take from this and the next verse. Nephi gives us a hint as to his own motivation for painstakingly writing this record. And we marvel at the writings of other prophets that we read. They're so beautifully put together and so full of light and truth and inspiration. We can see here that Nephi's motivation for writing a record in this way is for the learning and the profit of his children. Then Nephi broadens into this beautiful expression in verse 16 in one of my favorite verses, I think, of all time. Behold, my soul delighteth in the things of the Lord, and my heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. We can consider that as the beginning of Nephi's psalm. But before we go into that and talk more about why we can call it a psalm, let's step back and look at this phrase, delighteth in the scriptures. This is verbiage that might remind us of treasuring up the word, uh, something that the Savior will say when he appears on the world stage, and uh, that's recorded in his Gospels. Here's something from Cheryl C. Lant, um, General Primary President in General Conference in October 2005. This scripture teaches us how to read the Book of Mormon. It mentions three important ideas. First, my soul delighteth. I love this phrase. I have thought about hungering and thirsting after knowledge as I read the scriptures, but delighting in them is something else. I find that what I take away from the scriptures is determined by what I bring. Each time I read them, I am, in a sense, bringing a new person with new eyes to the experience. Where I am in my life, the experiences I am having, and my attitude all affect how much I will gain. I love the scriptures. I treasure the truths I find as I read them. Joy fills my heart as I receive encouragement, direction, comfort, strength, and answers to my needs. Life looks brighter, and the way opens before me. I am reassured of my Heavenly Father's love and concern for me every time I read. Surely this is a delight to me. As one little boy in a sunbeam class put it, I feel happy about the scriptures. Now second, my heart pondereth them. How I love to carry the scriptures with me in my heart. The spirit of what I have read rests there to bring me peace and comfort. The knowledge I have gained gives me guidance and direction. I have the confidence born out of obedience. And third, I, of course, do not write scriptures, as did Nephi. But when I read the scriptures and live the principles I learn, those scriptures become written in my life. They govern my actions and are written there for my children to see and follow. I can build a legacy, a tradition of righteous living based on the principles I learn in the scriptures. In verse 16, Nephi uses the word pondereth. And interestingly, the thing that does the pondering in verse 16 is his heart. My heart pondereth continually. That has a slightly different meaning and feel to the idea that our mind would ponder continually. Elder L. Tom Perry once said, The scriptures are one of our greatest resources. They contain God's instructions to his people from the beginning of time. In a world so full of the doctrines of men, how grateful we are to have a sure anchor on which to build our faith. Uh, Elder Richard G. Scott once said, Pondering a scripture gives great direction to life. Pondering a passage of scripture can be a key to unlock revelation and the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Scriptures can calm an agitated soul, giving peace, hope, 
and a restoration of confidence in one's ability to overcome the challenges of life. In verse 17, Nephi's tone will now turn as he takes us through this ending passage of this chapter. And before he does this, I want to go to some commentary about this passage. First from Sidney Sperry, This is a true psalm in both form and idea. Its rhythm is comparable to the noble cadence of David's poems. It not only praises God, but lays bare to us the very depths of Nephi's soul. A study of this psalm reveals how the scriptures delighted Nephi. The influence upon him of the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and the Psalms is very apparent. Uh, On another occasion, uh, Brother Sperry wrote, One of the intimate glimpses we get of Nephi's soul is found in uh, 2 Nephi chapter 4, verses 16 through 35, which passage we may call the Psalm of Nephi. It is the only psalm in the Book of Mormon. Now, Reynolds and Sojal said, This sequence of scripture is a remarkable piece of poetry composed by Nephi. It was clearly written at a time when he was depressed because of the death of his father and the enmity manifested towards him by his older brothers. Hebrew ancient poetry was essentially different from modern compositions in the poetical style. It lacked rhymes and meter. It was the rhythm of thought rather than of words. And that's out of their commentary on the Book of Mormon. The very newly published reader's edition of the Book of Mormon by Grant Hardy presents this psalm in verse. This helps to point out the poetical form of this psalm and uh, makes it uh, even appear visually more similar to the writings of others in the Old Testament. With that commentary as a preface to this psalm of Nephi, we'll return to the text and then I'll come back at the end to some uh, more extended commentary on it where we can uh, consider what it is that we've just read. I'll return again, knowing that I've already read this, but return again to verse 16, uh, because then by reading that we can see the dramatic uh, shift in tone and in feeling that uh, Nephi takes as he progresses into verse 17. So verse 16 Behold, my soul delighteth in the things of the Lord, and my heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord in showing me his great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am! Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. Admiring Nephi as we do as we read this record, it's a little bit jarring, I think, to read him saying such a thing of himself. O wretched man that I am. It's the same expression that Paul used uh, in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 7, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Wretched is a strong word and doesn't seem to apply to a prophet, but Nephi most certainly is using it here. We can certainly relate with the way in which Nephi says that his heart sorroweth because of his flesh. So Nephi clearly in these two verses is juxtaposing the, the tug and pull of the world, as Elder Maxwell once said, and the temptations and the tendencies of the flesh versus the marvelous things of God that are expressed in verse 16. We have this beautiful uh, piece of commentary from Elder Tad R. Callister that comes from his book, The Infinite Atonement. He says, rationalization is the intellectual drug that anesthetizes the sting of conscience. Nephi saw the danger signals in the lives of Laman and Lemuel when he noted, God hath spoken unto you in a still small voice, but you were past feeling. Contrast that with Nephi's lamentation, O wretched man that I am. My heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. It is hard to imagine those words from a prophet of God. Nephi's life was one of devotion and obedience, yet he was ever more conscious of the distance still to be traveled for perfection. The more spiritual an individual becomes, the more sensitive he becomes to his imperfections. The better he becomes, the worse he realizes he was. Nephi continues in this tone with verse 18, saying, I am encompassed about, 
because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And again, we think, if they so easily beset Nephi, they most certainly, these sins and temptations of the flesh, beset us. Reynolds and Sojal said, uh, with regard to the word beset, Nephi uses this word in the, the same sense the Old Testament writers, which he had read, used it. In other words, encompassed about or surrounded by. With this tendency in mind that we all have to be beset by the temptations and sins of the flesh, here's something from the Book of Mormon manual. Throughout the Book of Mormon, we note Nephi's righteousness, his faithfulness in tribulation, and his dedication to God, but he still exclaimed, O wretched man that I am! I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that the nearer a man approaches perfection, the clearer are his views and the greater his enjoyments till he has overcome the evils of his life and lost every desire for sin. Perhaps Nephi felt burdened by what we might consider trivial weaknesses to the point where they caused him sorrow and he sought to be free from any vestige of sin. Nephi's heartfelt plea for the Lord to help him overcome his weaknesses helps us understand how to conquer our own weaknesses. Personal experience teaches us of our need to do likewise. Elder Richard G. Scott of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles reminded us why we are commanded to repent and admonished us to take advantage of the Lord's redeeming power. Quote, Why have our Father and His Son commanded us to repent? Because they love us. They know all of us will violate eternal laws. Whether they be small or large, justice requires that every broken law be satisfied to retain the promise of joy in this life and the privilege of returning to Father in heaven. If not satisfied in the day of judgment, justice will cause that we be cast out of the presence of God to be under the control of Satan. It is our Master and His redeeming act that make it possible for us to avoid such condemnation. It is done through faith in Jesus Christ, obedience to His commandments, and enduring in righteousness to the end. Are you taking full advantage of the redeeming power of repentance in your life so that you can have greater peace and joy? Feelings of turmoil and despondency often signal a need for repentance. Also, the lack of the spiritual direction you seek in your life could result from broken laws. If needed, full repentance will put your life together. It will solve all of the complex spiritual pains that come from transgression. But in this life, it cannot remedy some of the physical consequences that can occur from serious sin. Be wise and consistently live well within the boundaries of righteousness defined by the Lord. Unquote. That's out of a, a October 2000 conference report by Elder Scott. President Dallin H. Oaks once taught, Perhaps these persons, as the saying goes, were born that way. But what does that mean? Does it mean that persons with susceptibilities or strong tendencies, and of course here tendencies towards sin is what Elder Oaks means, have no choice, no free agency in these matters? Our doctrine teaches us otherwise. Regardless of a person's susceptibility or tendency, his will is unfettered. His free agency is unqualified. It is his freedom that is impaired. We are all responsible for the exercise of our free agency. Most of us are born with thorns in the flesh. Some are visible, some are more serious than others. We all seem to have susceptibilities to one disorder or another. But whatever our susceptibilities, we have the will and the power to control our thoughts and our actions. This must be so. God has said that he holds us accountable for what we do and what we think. So our thoughts and actions may be, must be controllable by our agency. Once we have reached the age or condition of accountability, the claim, I was born that way, does not excuse actions or thoughts that fail to conform to the commandments of God. We need to learn how to live so that a weakness that is mortal will not prevent us from achieving the goal that is eternal. God has promised that He will consecrate our afflictions for our gain. The efforts we expend in overcoming any inherited weakness build a spiritual strength that will serve us throughout eternity. Thus, when Paul prayed thrice that his thorn in the flesh would depart from him, the Lord replied, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, returning here to Nephi's words, we find that again in verse 16, he's exulting in the 
the things of God. And then again, he's contrasting that with his own human and natural tendencies. And now he's done with that, and we see him change his tone again. He uses his own will and his own spiritual resilience to pull himself from that state and to change his focus. And we can learn much about the form of this psalm from what he's doing here. A key component to this we can see is that in addition to praising the Lord, is that he's going back and very carefully remembering great spiritual experiences and spiritual gifts that he's been given in the past. So with that, verse 19, And when I desired to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. All right, so that's the end of that segment where Nephi is lamenting in this way about his own natural tendencies. Then he says, Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. Verse 20, My God hath been my support. He hath led me through mine afflictions in the wilderness, and he hath preserved me upon the waters of the great deep. This will begin to serve as something like an index for us to experiences of Nephi's that he has already provided in the narrative. When he says that the Lord hath led him through his afflictions in the wilderness, well, we can think of what those were based on what Nephi has written. And then when he was preserved upon the waters of the great deep, we most certainly can think of that episode in 1 Nephi chapter 18. Here's something from Rust uh, in a book called Book of Mormon Imagery. He talks about the word wilderness. When God frees people from bondage, leading them out into and then through the wilderness, often seems to be the way he does it. The pattern of escape into a wilderness is found in the Book of Mormon in the stories of Moses, Lehi, Nephi, Mulek, Mosiah, Limhi, Alma, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, Jared, and King Omer. Responses to the wilderness were dramatically different. It seemed to be a spiritual as much as a physical testing ground. For righteous Nephi, the wilderness was a place for receiving revelation, but Laman and Lemuel feared perishing in it. Now Nephi tells us this in verse 21, and we're not sure exactly what to link this to in the previous narrative but it gives us great insight into what it must have felt like for him to uh, have the vision that he did and to partake of the, the fruit in that vision of the tree of life. Verse 21, He hath filled me with his love, even unto the consuming of my flesh. Verse 22, He hath confounded mine enemies unto the causing them to quake before me. And of course, we can think about that episode in First Nephi chapter 17. 23, Behold, he hath heard my cry by day, and he hath given me knowledge by visions in the nighttime. We can think of times past when Nephi did use that verbiage for prayer when he said that he cried unto the Lord. That's the way he expressed it in 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 16. And then the Lord consequently, it says in that verse, softened his heart, that he did believe all the words of his father. Then, of course, we know much about Nephi's vision that he provided for us in chapters 11 through 14, when he says visions in the nighttime in verse 23. So we can see this pattern so far, that Nephi is beginning to spiritually pull himself up by his bootstraps. His attitude is changing as he progresses through this psalm. Of course, again, he's showing us a pattern for doing the same. Here's something from Reynolds and Souljall. From the depressing contemplation of weaknesses and shortcomings, Nephi now directs his thoughts toward God, then the depression vanishes. He counts the many blessings God has bestowed upon him from the day he accompanied his father out of Jerusalem. So again, there is specificity in this psalm where Nephi is recounting these specific experiences, so something that we too can do. Verse 24, And by day have I waxed bold in mighty prayer before him. Yea, my voice have I sent up on high, and angels came down and ministered unto me. When he uses the phrase sent up, it makes us think perhaps of the distance between us and God, uh, from whom we are estranged because of the fall of Adam. Yet somehow through prayer, our voice can ascend up and go into his presence. It's a beautiful image to consider. And then that from that same presence, angelic ministers can come from that realm down to ours and to minister to us. That's portrayed beautifully in the book of Revelation as well. Verse 25 
And upon the wings of his spirit hath my body been carried away upon exceedingly high mountains. And mine eyes have beheld great things, yea, even too great for man. Therefore I was bidden that I should not write them. Nephi links himself to other prophets when he says that he was carried away. Moses, chapter 1, verse 1, says the words of God which he spake unto Moses at a time when Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain. It also links him with the Apostle Paul, who said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such an one caught up to the third heaven. And then, of course, this is a specific reference, when in verse 25, Nephi says that his body had been carried away, uh, because in verse 1 of 1 Nephi chapter 11, he said, For it came to pass that after I desired to know the things which my father had seen, and believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me as I sat pondering in my heart, I was caught away in the Spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceedingly high mountain, which I never had before seen, and upon which I never had before set my foot. It's very interesting verbiage, and of course it applies here to being caught away into the visionary realm. I think uh, to a smaller degree, though, it can also happen to us that we can be carried away by the Spirit as we carefully study His Word in a prayerful manner. We can sometimes lose sense of time and place. McConkie and Millet uh, said this about being carried away and, and exceedingly high mountains. To be carried by the Spirit to the, to the high mountain was an experience Nephi shared in common with many of the spiritual giants of ages past. Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain, and he saw God face to face, and he talked with him. Ezekiel was carried from Babylon in vision to the land of Israel, and there set upon a very high mountain to see a future temple. Jesus was in the Spirit, and it taketh him up into an exceedingly high mountain, and sheweth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Others of the prophets speak of being carried by the Spirit in vision to the heavenly temple, of which the high mountain is but the symbol. We can read that in Isaiah chapter 6, for example, and Lehi and also John the Revelator are examples of that. All who have been entrusted with a high mountain or temple experience have been given knowledge that they are not at liberty to share. Of course, Nephi uh, intimates that in the previous verse when he says that he was bidden that he should not write them. Then McConkie and Millet continue, There are many sacred truths revealed to those worthy and ready to receive them, that are not lawful for man to utter. Neither is man capable to make them known. For they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows on those who love Him and purify themselves before Him. Now that Nephi has recounted these great experiences, he comes back in chapter 26 and juxtaposes this uh, with his earlier expression of lament because of the weaknesses of his flesh. He says this, O oh, then, if I have seen so great things, if the Lord in his condescension unto the children of men hath visited men in so much mercy, why should my heart weep and my soul linger in the valley of sorrow, and my flesh waste away, and my strength slacken because of mine afflictions? And why should I yield to sin because of my flesh? Yea, why should I give way to temptations that the evil one have place in my heart to destroy my peace and afflict my soul? Why am I angry because of my enemy? Yielding to sin is interesting verbiage here, and Paul used it in Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. These seem to be generalities that Nephi is speaking in until we get to the end of verse 27 when he says, Why am I angry because of mine enemy? And there we might have some insight into what it is that he was lamenting about the most. Ogden and Skinner tell us Nephi's enemies were his own brothers. We saw in Second Nephi 1, uh, verse 26, a hint of the struggle with anger that Nephi had. In 3 Nephi chapter 12, verse 22, among other passages, anger is forbidden. Though we might think he was justified, Nephi knew that his intense feelings of anger were wrong 
and did not come from the Lord, and that they were driving away the Spirit. Elder Theodore M. Burton warned, Whenever you get red in the face, whenever you raise your voice, whenever you get hot under the collar, or angry, rebellious, or negative in spirit, then know that the Spirit of God is leaving you, and the Spirit of Satan is beginning to take over. Reynolds and Sojal said in this paragraph, Nephi further opens his heart and makes it clear that it was anger that had beset him. That was the iniquity, the sin, that caused his flesh to waste away and opened his heart to the adversary to destroy his peace. So Nephi continues in verse 28, Awake, my soul, no longer droop in sin. Rejoice, O my heart, and give place no more for the enemy of my soul. Do not anger because of mine enemies. Do not slacken my strength because of mine afflictions. He's providing himself with his own solution then. He's envisioning a state of spirit where he rejoices and gives place no more for the enemy of his soul. It's a very powerful concept. His use of the word droop is curious, no longer droop in sin. It's reminiscent of Psalm 42, verse 11, which says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. For the remainder of this passage in this psalm, we can see how Nephi's gaze is fixed heavenward. He is envisioning the time when he will overcome these tendencies. Verse 30, Rejoice, O my heart, and cry unto the Lord, and say, O Lord, I will praise thee forever. Yea, my soul will rejoice in thee, my God, and the rock of my salvation. We can think of rock of salvation as a name title of Jesus Christ, really. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 says, For no other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Then Nephi says in verse 31, O Lord, wilt thou redeem my soul? Wilt thou deliver me out of the hands of mine enemies? Wilt thou make me that I may shake at the appearance of sin? It's as if to say that he feels that his soul is bound by these fleshly tendencies and temptations and is asking specifically for deliverance. Nephi is not saying in this verse that his soul does shake at the appearance of sin. He's asking the Lord to make him that way, that he would shake at the appearance of sin. This is a curious request by Nephi. It attests, I think, to the spiritual refinement that we read of earlier in this chapter that can occur as we draw closer to the Lord and where sin becomes more abhorrent to us. Ogden and Skinner say we should also shake with anger. When we see Satan at work producing one Hollywood blockbusting crudity after another, Alma says that as we become more and more cleansed and purified, we can look upon sin only with abhorrence. You just get to a point where you have zero tolerance for the trivial, the inane, and the crude. President Thomas S. Monson cautioned, The face of sin today often wears the mask of tolerance. Do not be deceived. Behind that facade is heartache, unhappiness, and pain. You know what is right and what is wrong, and no disguise, however appealing, can change that. The character of transgression remains the same. Nephi's request here in verse 31 that he be delivered out of the hands of his enemies was commented upon by uh, McConkie and Millet. Salvation is nothing more nor less than to triumph over all our enemies and put them under our feet. And when we have the power to pull all enemies under our feet in this world and a knowledge of triumph over all evil spirits in the world to come, then we are saved. As in the case of Jesus, who was to reign until he had put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy was death. To clarify, that is Joseph Smith speaking, and he's being quoted in, uh, by McConkie and Millet. I didn't make that clear, but you can tell from that style of writing that that indeed is the prophet Joseph Smith. Then Nephi says in verse 32, May the gates of hell be shut continually before me, because that my heart is broken and my spirit is contrite as though those two characteristics are the thing that can prevent one from entering those gates. O Lord, wilt thou not shut the gates of thy righteousness before me, that I may walk in the path of the low valley, that I may be strict in the plain road? This association here between walking in the path of the low valley, which doesn't immediately sound appealing, 
or being strict in the plain road, which too can sound restrictive. Those seem to be the things that lead one to the gates of his righteousness, which might make us think of that beautiful eternal city that John the Revelator saw in vision at the very end of Revelation, and the gates that one who could enter, uh, and the gates that bounded the place where those uh, who were exalted uh, dwelt. Nephi continues with imagery of that sort when talking about the robe of thy righteousness in the next verse. But first, this commentary from McConkie and Millet on, on this phrase, strict in the plain road. Gospel covenants are to be lived with exactness and honor. It is not for man to dictate the terms of salvation. Too many have been too willing to rewrite the terms of eternal covenants into which they have entered. It has been observed that to almost live the commandments is to almost receive the promised blessings. Now verse 33, O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? O Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? Wilt thou make my path straight before me? Wilt thou not place a stumbling block in my way? But that thou wouldst clear my way before me and hedge not up my way, but the ways of mine enemy. It almost makes us wonder at this point, how is it that Nephi could have even had enemies? We know the answer from reading his record up to this point, but it still makes us wonder, I think, that if we are so uh, lovingly disposed towards others, having the spirit of charity, how is it that we even could have enemies? I think Nephi certainly wasn't stirring up enemies through bad behavior, because that's one way, of course, to gain enemies in life, but instead He's referring to those who were agents of the great enemy of righteousness, those who were rubbed the wrong way by his, his counsel and by the counsel of his father. Then verse 34, O Lord, I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. I will not put my trust in the arm of flesh, for I know that cursed is he that putteth his trust in the arm of flesh. Yea, cursed is he that putteth his trust in man, or maketh flesh his arm. So he restates that again. This arm of flesh, or the strength of man here, is contrasted by the strength of God. And uh, we have many other prophetic writers who have drawn that same distinction. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5, for example, says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Mormon recounts two times in the late uh, Book of Mormon record of how it is in Mormon chapter 3 and in Mormon chapter 4 that the people began to boast in their own strength. Proverbs 14 verse 16 says, A wise man feareth and departeth from evil, but the fool rageth and is confident. Now for the final verse of this psalm, verse 35, Yea, I know that God will give liberally to him that asketh. Yea, my God will give me, if I ask not amiss. Therefore I will lift up my voice unto thee. Yea, I will cry unto thee, my God, the rock of my righteousness. Behold, my voice shall forever ascend up unto thee, my rock and mine everlasting God. Amen. We spoke a few moments ago about this name title of rock. And this comes as well from Deuteronomy chapter 20 or 32 verse 4 he is the rock his work is perfect for all his ways are judgment a god of truth and without iniquity just and right is he Nephi ends this then in an, in an expression of prayer and reminding us that God does give liberally to him that asketh sounds very much like the words of James this must have been uh, quite an experience for Joseph Smith to translate this verse and to hear the similar tone between this and the verse that first spurred him to go to the grove of trees and to ask God, who giveth liberally and upbraideth not. A critical teaching is contained in this verse, if I ask not amiss. Doctrine and Covenants section 88 verses 63 through 65 tell us, Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you, the Lord said. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, it shall be given unto you. 
that is expedient for you. And if ye ask anything that is not expedient for you, it shall turn unto your condemnation. And Nephi again ends this beautiful psalm with a similar image that he did earlier with, with the idea that his voice could leave his presence and make it to God's presence through righteous prayer. Now that we've come to the end of this beautiful chapter and the end of this psalm of Nephi, I'll offer a couple more pieces of commentary on it. Uh, Ogden and Skinner said, The rest of chapter 4 contains one of the most personal glimpses we have in all of Scripture into the heart of a righteous man and prophet who, in spite of his transcendent revelations and sterling example of righteousness, was still struggling to overcome his mortal weaknesses. This literary and spiritual masterpiece is often called the Psalm of Nephi. Catherine Thomas, who is a professor of of ancient scripture at BYU, once wrote, A psalm is a poem, a song of praise, not a sermon or doctrinal treatise, but an expression of personal religious experience. Nephi's psalm in 2 Nephi chapter 4, verses 16 through 35, employs some of the features characteristic of his Hebrew literary heritage, such as the themes of sorrow and sin, communion with and delight in God, the search for perfection, humility under chastening, and triumph over evil. He framed his feelings in typical Hebrew parallelism, where ideas are repeated with variation or contrasted, such as, Awake, my soul, no longer droop in sin. Rejoice, O my heart, and give place no more for the enemy of my soul. But of far more than literary importance is the spiritual insight available in this passage, Though only Nephi's words appear here, the reader may see in them a progression of thought that indicates the presence of the Lord's Spirit. It is, therefore, more of a prayerful dialogue than a soliloquy. Here's something from the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies by Matthew Nickerson in an article called uh, Long Form, excuse me, in an article called Nephi's Psalm in the Light of Form Critical Analysis. He tells us this, that the form of Nephi's psalm begins with an invocation, and that is verses 16 and 17. The individual lament begins with a call to God and is often followed by a short introductory petition. The initial call to God is not as explicit in Nephi's psalm as it is in some of the psalms of the Old Testament. This is not unusual. When the subsequent sections support the initial cry for help, It is sometimes difficult to isolate an invocation as such. This is the case with Nephi's psalm, where subsequent sections contain numerous calls to God, using the same phrase as above, O Lord. Then there is the complaint, and that stretches from verses 17 through 19. The complaint portion, Nickerson says, of an individual lament generally follows the invocation and is where the supplicant describes his woes to the Lord. Typically, the poet laments some tragedy or malady and describes its ill effects. Suffering described in laments can include many types of physical and emotional distress. Then we move to Nephi's confession of trust in verses 20 through 30. The lament is usually followed by a brief declaration of trust in the Lord and his abilities to relieve and reward the sufferer. Though sometimes found at the end or repeated near the end of the psalm, The confession of trust is a classic element and is rarely absent from the lament. Then there is the petition, and that is in verses 31 through 33. In the petition, the suppliant seeks the Lord's help in alleviating the sorrows or sufferings described in the complaint. The first verse of Nephi's petition contains references and language common to the Near Eastern lament tradition. Westerman identifies defense against freedom from enemies as the dominant subject and most elaborately developed part of the Psalms of Lament. Then there is the vow of praise, and that's verses 34 through 35. In the oldest laments, the concluding portion is a vow to sing a song of praise or thanksgiving. In many Psalms of Lamentation, the change from petition to praise is very abrupt, and the sudden change of tone and content has been noted by many Psalm scholars. Gunkel believes that this abrupt change in the psalm's closing verses is evident of the suppliant's great faith in the Lord's imminent help and referred to this specific element as the certainty of hearing. In many psalms, this certainty on the part of the suppliant 
is demonstrated not only by simply promising to sing thanksgiving and praise, but by actually including their gratitude and praise for the Lord in the closing verses of the lament. And then there is the conclusion of Nephi's psalm, which, again, as Brother Nickerson is showing here, is the same as the conclusion of psalms in general. Nephi's psalm plainly follows the format and substance of the individual lament, and as described by Gunkel and elaborated upon by numerous subsequent scholars. Study and comparison reveal that 2 Nephi chapter 4, verses 16-35 through 35, is indeed a true psalm, and not merely a passage of Scripture bearing similarities in tone and feeling to the Old Testament Psalter. It is a classic example of an ancient poetic form. The psalm of individual lament, not only does Nephi exhibit a talent for literary parallelism, but he also has written a beautiful psalm in the biblical sense of the term. Clearly, Nephi was participating in an ancient literary tradition when he wrote his psalm recorded in chapter 4 of Second Nephi. It is not unreasonable to expect that Nephi's education, described as the learning of the Jews and the learning of my father, included an appreciation and use of Hebrew poetry. This brings us to the end, then, of this beautiful chapter, Second Nephi, chapter 4. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.